When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, this is another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast with Matt Chancy. Thanks so much for attending. Today, I've got a special guest. We brought an attorney on that is from Port St. Lucie, Florida, uh, an estate attorney and likes to help keep wealth in the family and when not keeping wealth in the family, also an adjunct professor teaching and passing on to, to all the years of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, but it's uh, Jamie Burrow. Thanks so much for coming today, Jamie. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad you could be here. Well, you know, look, I think everybody, especially people that have accumulated things in their lifetime, right, that have established wealth and, and even the people that haven't, right, um, they have people that they care about. They have people that they love. And at the end of the day, when we're not here anymore, you know, we want to make sure that the things that we have, we've accumulated in our lifetime that are valuable to us, whether they're valuable to anybody else or not, we want to make sure that they get in the right hands of the people that we care about. So, how did you pick that profession? What drove you to say, I want to help keep wealth and important things in the family? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because that's not where that wasn't my initial trajectory when I decided to go to law school. Right. But really, after coming out of law school and, and working um, in the field, um, talking to clients, I started to see that there was a trend with my clients down here back home in Port St. Lucie um, where their loved one would have passed away. And it turns out there's a lot of bickering once the family, a lot of hearsay when it comes to what, you know, mom's wishes were after they passed away. And, it, and you know what, to know that we could save on the headache down the line um, ahead of time, that told me that, you know, this is where I need to be, that I think this is where I could do the best good for the community. Yeah, I hear that. Well, I think going through the death of a, of a loved one, especially if you have siblings and other stuff like that and in-laws, it's the fastest thing I've ever seen turn an in-law into an outlaw. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of gets uh, messy when you're dealing with, you know, blended families and um, things of that sort. You know, let's take a gentleman, you know, that I um, knew in the past, he had his family, his wife, second wife, and didn't have a will. Um, and really what he wanted to do was to make sure he set aside something for his stepdaughter. But unfortunately, you know, if you don't do that ahead of time, you're not, that's not going to be accomplished. You know, thank goodness we got in, we, we handled that before, you know, he passed away. But that's just one of the things, you know, folks don't know, no matter how close you are to somebody, the law doesn't necessarily say that person's next in line for your assets. 
Sure. You know, so, okay, interesting case that I stumbled across the other day. And I want to, crazy, I had heard of this, but I'm going to throw it at you. You have probably heard of this before. So, someone shared with me a story recently that um, guy was on a decently wealthy gentleman, was on a second marriage, and was planning to leave his assets to his a daughter from a first marriage from his original daughter and his second wife was trying to like leave him and I guess take him for everything. Right. And he committed suicide to make sure that the beneficiary designations kicked in on his stuff before the woman could file divorce and the assets bypassed the probate or anything process through function of law to go to his daughter. Wow. <laughs> Talk about extreme measures. That's wow. Wow. Um, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. I can't say I've come across that in particular, but that's another reason why, you know, and planning in advance is important, right? You know, perhaps they could have done a prenup, postnup, what have you, and maybe that wouldn't have been that much of an issue. But yeah, I'm definitely sorry to hear something like that. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, we all hear the joke say, you know why divorce is expensive because it's worth it. Right. I mean, that that was an extension of a whole nother level of planning right there. You know, and I guess, you know, she she's like, I think I'm going to get this guy for everything that he's worth. And he's like, "Mm -hmm, I I got an answer for that. Right. All right. I'll show you. I'll show show you. Uh, oh man, I hate to laugh at somebody else's misery, but I mean, because a lot of people wouldn't think that, but you know, and you can speak to this, I'm sure that a beneficiary designation on an account, whether it's a retirement account or an investment account or whatever, those avoid any type of a probate or dispute process like that because it's function of law and it would pass to the beneficiary without the other person being able to ultimately contest that. Is that, is that kind of true? That is true. I mean, I've, I've seen some folks try to contest it, you know, trying to argue, you know, different things like, uh, you know, undue influence and, you know, incapacity. But yes, that, that's the general mechanism of it. You know, you set your beneficiary designation and then by operation of law, it transfers, you know, the same thing folks don't know, at least here in Florida, we have um, ladybird deeds, right? And essentially, you know, transfer the property to yourself with a special reservation that it transfers to someone else is basically a a beneficiary designation. And folks don't know like that. So that's a means by which we can avoid probate for your home. That's right. Let me lean into that a little bit. So for people that are listening that haven't heard that, so Lady Bird Deed is basically a beneficiary designation that you can assign to your home, to your primary residence, so that if you pass away, that your home can avoid the probate process. But which I think typically, if it's only your home anyway, maybe there's a it's a lighter probate process. I think it's called a summary probate or something like that. Maybe you can speak to that. Oh, yes. So we do have two main types of probate in Florida, summary administration, formal administration. Summary administration is for, I want to say, smaller estates as a jurisdiction cap of $75,000. But um, any exempt property doesn't count in that uh, jurisdictional limit. So, you know, your homestead property, um, two vehicles, up to two vehicles. um, And there is a weight limit in there as well. But so generally speaking, you know, if that's all you have in your your loved one's estate, you know, the, the homestead, you know, a couple of vehicles, you could push that through 
probate rather quickly. Where you get into the lengthy types of probate is where you see, you know, bank accounts with large sums of money in it or, or rental, rental properties, and especially assets that are, you know, out of state or even out of country. Right. So are there ways to put beneficiary designations on bank accounts and stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. So each bank is going to have its own, you know, internal processes. But generally, you know, you fill out a few forms and you're essentially letting the bank know this is my beneficiary. And it's as simple as your loved one presenting your death certificate to the bank to receive the funds. Gotcha. And so what's the complication you brought up out of state? I would think that if something happened out of state, finding some of these assets would be hard. How would I know that someone had a loved one, a loved one had an account in another state? How would I even know that? Like number one, and number two, where's the complication come in with the probate process? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because that's a big thing, you know, that I see a lot of my clients have, you know, their parents passed away and they're not quite sure what they had, right? And in some of those instances, you know, we might need to engage a private investigator maybe, or maybe there might have been a safe deposit box with some more clues as to where you could find some in- information, things like that. But where the real complication comes when you're doing a probate, let's say, you know, the person died here in Florida and they died with assets in New York. Well, that just means we're gonna need a probate here in Florida and in New York. So that's gonna be tracking down, you know, an attorney mm-hmm. up there. And um, that's just more time, more effort, more money at the end of the day, when, you know, if you do the planning ahead of time, you could avoid all of that. Gotcha. You know, I have a client that's in the, um, like the estate type recovery business. So they help, people that um, they don't normally find the person that's probating the assets or whatever, but they find family members, right? So, okay, let me back it up so I can tell the story so it makes a little bit of sense, right? So originally they were in the real estate business. And if you are in the real estate business, you know, the goal is to find kind of the ugliest house in the nicest neighborhood, right? Like that's the opportunity. So you drive through a nice neighborhood and you see a house and the grass is grown up and the sh- ugly and there's bushes are all grown up around it. And a lot of times that person has passed away that lived in that house, but somebody didn't know that that person passed away or their, whoever their heir might've been, or they didn't have any heirs. So they started to do the research, started to find out that yes, you know, doing like ancestry.com and finding the tree and going, Oh, there is somebody, but there's a second cousin in Indiana that we need to contact. Right. So then you contact the second cousin, Annie, Annie, you're like, you're not going to believe this, but you might be the closest living descendant of this house that's down in this area, you know, and I, if you could help me a little bit, we can get you through the probate process and help you recover some of this stuff, right? So I always found that, I found that really interesting when they was explaining that business to me, but, you know, it's, it's, it's finding that home and then finding those heirs. So how complicated is it or a part of your, of your, your responsibilities when you're setting up these plans, is it to know who all the heirs are, and then to be able to communicate the wishes of the people putting together the plan um, preemptively to those heirs so that if and when that time happens, they, they kind of know what to do or who to contact. How much of a part of it is that? Oh, that's, that's a huge part of it because, you know, um, probably one of the biggest parts, right? So one of the biggest parts is, you know, figuring out what you own and listing that out appropriately. But yeah, you really want to make sure you know who your assets are going to, and I like to 
I tell my clients I deal with what ifs, right? So yes, you may want, you know, your watch to go to your your cousin, your favorite cousin, but you know, what if your cousin passes away before you? So it's good to have contingencies down the line so that you don't run into that issue of, you know, us having to track your 16th removed cousin to make sure that your your property can move forward. So yeah, it's it's a huge part of it. Sure. Gotcha. Yeah. Find helping them understand. Cause if they don't know where to look for the stuff that you have, right. You know, like what are you going to do? It's a needle in a haystack type situation, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So having a good inventory is, is important. Absolutely important. Do clients have reservations about sharing the inventory of the stuff that they own with people that might be the beneficiary of it while they're still here? Does that bother people? I've I've gotten mixed results, <laughs> mixed mixed concerns about that. You know, some some parents are like, "Oh, I trust my children indefinitely," and others are like, "Ah, let's let's put this in the safe. They'll find out later on." But essentially, yeah, it's pretty mixed, and you know that makes me think of something that you know I was dealing with a client recently, and they didn't understand just how much trust you have to put into the person you're designating in charge of your estate here in Florida, we call them personal representatives or even a trustee. If you're doing a trust, uh, they didn't realize just how much uh, power they had over your estate. Um, and that just made them think like, wow, I, I really should pick somebody I trust. So all of these things are, are important concerns that we you know, go over in the estate planning process. Gotcha. Understood. So you brought up something there. You said, you know, we've talked a little bit about beneficiary designations and ladybird deed. And these are tools that, you know, are part of the estate planning process. And then you just talked about trust, right? So personal representative and a trustee. So when would somebody potentially want to use a trust? And this isn't a legal conversation, so we're not going to hold you to it. Just conceptually, (laughs) right? At a much higher level, when should someone start to think about a trust and it might be a good idea for what they're trying to do? Well, there's a few different reasons. Um, a lot of my clients, their biggest concern is controlling what happens with their assets long after they pass away. So they kind of want to pull the strings after they've died. And a trust is good to do that. But there's, you know, there's other other important parts of trust too, right? So I help a lot of uh, clients get set up with um, Medicaid planning and trust play, irrevocable trust play strong roles in that. If you're dealing with high net worth clients, you know, you may want to discuss whether an irrevocable trust might be important or or helpful in sheltering some of their assets from, you know, estate uh, taxes, uh, federal estate taxes, at least. That's my only concern here in Florida. You know, with the current exemptions and everything, it's not really too much of an issue, terribly, depending on the clients you're you're working with. Uh, But essentially, the trust is going to really depend on what your goals are. But I tell all my clients, I'm a strong advocate for a trust-based plan because, you know, unlike a will here in Florida, a trust, having your assets in there would help bypass probate altogether. So it's just uh, another means of, of accomplishing that goal of avoiding probate. Sure, sure. Makes sense. So... I heard you talk about Medicaid planning in there. And so Medicaid planning, the way I understand it, and I'm going to let you correct me is, you know, I've got my assets over here like this, and then 
I need some form of long-term care or whatever, potentially in a facility or from the state or whatever, because I think it's a state administered program. And the state has guidelines that says, if my income is under certain thresholds and my assets are under certain thresholds or positioned in a certain way, that I might be able to qualify for the state to pay for my care. So it's a function of either naturally just almost kind of going broke, right? Or repositioning some of your assets to use some special circumstances and planning so that the government will say, hey, we see what you did there and we'll step up and we'll help out with the bill. Is that a thing? People doing that? Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) People are. It's really important because when you think about long-term care, without that program in place, a lot of people would be spending up their their hard-earned money just so that they can receive uh, the care that they need. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I've run into a lot of people who kind of consider it a little taboo. They think they're getting a handout when really, no, you know, you, you worked into the system and it's just about making sure that you receive the care you need while sheltering your assets for the next generation to come. And I think that's the biggest thing, um, the biggest motivator for my clients who decide to go through Medicaid planning because they want rather their children get the benefit of their assets rather than the state or a healthcare facility. Well, you worked hard for your money and if there's an opportunity and it's in the code and you can keep money in the family, it's just a function of knowing more, right? And knowing how the program exactly. works and being able to act. So, so are there some assets that are potentially exempt from like the Medicaid spin down process? Absolutely. So your primary residence, that's a big one. That's exempt from the um, the actual application process, as well as let's say you have other properties like rental properties. So income, um, income producing assets, those are exempt as well. And in terms of transferring assets, you know, let's say we're trying to go the route of an irrevocable trust to shelter some of your assets. By transferring to an irrevocable trust, you do run into the, the gifting issue and possibly being penalized depending on when you go ahead and apply for Medicaid. So it's good to know these things ahead of time, you know, before you start actually applying. But where I'm getting at with that is you could also transfer any amount that you'd like to a spouse to shelter it in their hands. And there's no penalty for that. So, you know, there's different, you know, different exemptions and different strategies that we could approach it with. But those are the the top ones that come to mind. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. So primary residence and you can, you know, income producing assets that, that was it. So like if you own rental real estate per se, and it's generating cash flow from it, that's can be an exempt asset. Correct. So the actual asset itself, the home, the rental property will be exempt, but what you need to look out for is the income coming in. So if that ends up putting you over the income threshold, then we'll have to, um, engage some other, you know, means to make sure that we get your income down for, you know, the Florida limits and everything. But yes, income producing property absolutely would be exempt. I think I've heard before that there are some types of special income trusts and stuff that can catch that income and kind of obfuscate it from the application per se in a legal way, right? Right. Is in a, it, exactly. And in a legal way, because one thing that's important for everyone to know is that these are, you know, provisions and strategies that the government has outlined for us to use. They basically said, you know, giving us permission to do this. And essentially those types of um, 
trust, those income trusts, qualified income trusts, they'll receive your income and essentially it'll say, yeah, we'll disperse some to you, you know, for, for things that are generally outside of what the long-term care Medicaid is going to cover. And that's generally, that's a, a bird's eye view of how that works. Okay. Okay. Understood. Makes sense. I'm familiar with how I've heard it before in the past. So if you give assets away, I remember back in the day, I'd heard of this because I had some grandparents that went through this process a little bit. So I was somewhat familiar from back in the day. It was like a five-year rule or something. Does that kind of stuff still exist? It does. So when um, you're going to apply for Medicaid and you're trying to move things around, um, it's important to know that if you're gifting anything, getting things out of your name, the Medicaid office is going to look at that and say, okay, well, within the past five years, if you gifted anything, uh, they're going to penalize you for that. Just because that's not one of the means by which the government has outlined that you can appropriately shelter your assets. But, you know, there's, there's different strategies to it. So if you're gifting to you know, your spouse, you know, that's something completely different, like I mentioned before. But the, the main goal, if you are in an emergency situation and you have to bite that bullet and say, okay, well, you know, there's nothing else that I can do. I'm going to, you know, take the hit for the penalty. That's one thing. But, you know, we have so many different options that we can do, like, a, you know, a caregiver agreement, you know, things like that, where we can really maximize the Medicaid planning process so that we can avoid the mess and the pitfalls of, of uh, the, the penalties. Sure. Understood. Uh, caregiver agreements. I, I used to hear back in the day, there was something like a personal services contract Is that kind of in that same ballpark. Exactly. Exactly. So essentially, you know, if you have a, a, one of these caregiver agreements, personal services contract, Essentially, and it's different in every single straight state because, you know, it's state administered, as you said, but in Florida, we do accept those. Um, and it's just a means of, of getting wealth over and sheltering that wealth to allow you to qualify. Um, and essentially, let's say, for instance, you had a, a, your daughter taking care of you long term at home. Uh, the personal services contract could say, hey, you know, I'm going to transfer all of this money to you as payment for your services as my caregiver. And the Medicaid office takes that and, and understands, okay, well, this is an exemption from any penalties. And we use that, you know, although it's, it's very important, we can use those in, you know, emergency situations when we need to get somebody in quick. Sure, sure. And I mean, I, some a, a daughter would take care of a mom or a parent anyway. That's just something they would naturally do. So if compensating them a little bit for it, do it. And it also helps us qualify for something. It seems like it's a win-win, right? Exactly. Win-win. <laughs> Absolutely. So I've heard before, you know, um, what about veterans benefits? Are there any type of veterans benefits that coordinate or work together with some of these these potential Medicaid programs? There are VA benefits and it is possible to, to in, in some situations to uh, take advantage of all of them at the same time, but it really just goes into, you know, all the qualifications for the VA benefits, whether you, whether you qualify, but that is a service that my firm does, does provide, but it just, it all comes down to a case by case basis. 
Gotcha. So is it all planning that you guys do? Because it sounds like there's a lot of planning and kind of moving stuff around a little bit legally. But then I think if I remember the process from a, there's an application process to the state that you have to file or whatever to be kind of accepted into the program. Is that part of the, the overall service? Yes, it is. So we do help our folks get, you know, through the approval process and, you know, answering any questions that the state might have. But ultimately, that's the extent of our services here. You know, there are different elder law law firms who really specialize in, you know, appeals. So let's say, you know, you apply and, you know, you get denied. It's not really for a good reason, or at least there's a good argument behind why you should be, you know, approved. There's different law firms that specialize in going to the government and, and appealing those. But my, my firm uh, is limited mostly to the application process. Okay. Understood. Understood. So let's look at the other side of the coin. So we talked about people maybe getting older, health not so good, needing a high level of care, income and assets not necessarily all that high that they can cover or self-insure on that and looking for government benefit qualification. The other side of that, which is probably certainly lesser people to deal with, is the estate planning side, right? I mean, today, as a married couple, isn't it like $23 million that you can have in your estate before you pay estate taxes? Right. And I mean, that law, the Tax Jobs and Cuts Act, I think it's for- Tax Cuts and Job Act, TCJA. There you go. I was switching it around. (laughs) I believe that provision is supposed to, to sunset in 2026. Uh, but yeah, that's basically what it is. Um, you know, it's a pretty high threshold, especially when you're dealing with, you know, your run of the mill clients. Uh, but when you're getting into the high net worth clients, you know, once you start getting, you know, over that exemption amount, it's it's time to start thinking, you know, what high level planning can we do to, I don't want to say hide your money from the, the government, but, but certainly move it with taking advantage of the tax laws that are out there. Sure. Well, look, it's not people can might look at this all day long and say these are loopholes or, you know, whatever, but it's in the law. It's in the code. These are just understanding the rules of the game and knowing how to how the game is played. Right. And and we just talked about people that are on the lower end of the income spectrum, being able to move stuff around and and have the government pay for your long term care. Why is that loophole any different than a wealthy person moving it around a little bit and not paying estate taxes? It's similar. Right. Exactly. I think at the end of the day, the way to look at it is safeguarding your assets for the next generation or even generations to come. Um, And it's just, you know, taking advantages of the law, the permissions that we were already granted. That's all. That's right. I learned a long time ago that every dollar that somebody has is every dollar that somebody has, right? And they look at it mm. the same way. Whether it's ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, or ten million, it's all that they have, you know. And it matters, right. and it's sacred to them and their family the same way, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, people don't run around ch- counting other people's chickens all the time when it's at the end of the day. Right. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> You're like, these are my chickens and I want to make sure they get to who they get to, right? <laughs> Understood. Right. Good stuff. So, you know, legislatively all the time, you know, every time we hear like, so we had the Tax Cuts and Job Act, TCJA, and then we just had the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, constantly hear this political struggle back and forth talking about, you know, taxation. It's always a hot button or whatever, you know, a talking point in the in the political agenda. 
You know, they've been trying to cut some of these estate tax benefits. Did did any of that get impacted one way or the other in the Inflation Reduction Act that just came out? Were some of those being talked about? Are they on the chopping block in the future? Where do we see the ball going? I haven't seen big changes uh, with the new law that came into effect, but I've heard a lot of um, talk about changing, let's say, you know, um, what we were just talking about, the exemption amount and, and changing whether or not we get that step up in basis after someone passes away in, in certain assets. But I haven't seen that implemented just yet, but there has been a lot of talk. Gotcha. Well, so you brought it up, right? You There you go using fancy industry terms. So stepped up basis, like explain to the listeners, if you're unfamiliar with that concept, what is a stepped up basis? Well, you know, when you're dealing with Let's say you buy a property. Let's say, you know, you paid 50 grand for the piece of property. If you go and sell it next year for 60, 60 grand, um, and, you know, just try to use smaller numbers here, <laughs> you're going to pay, you know, capital gains tax essentially on, well, let's say you sell in two years, just to make it simple. You're going to be paying capital gains tax on that $10,000 gain. That initial purchase value is your basis. However, if you were, let's say you purchased a home for $50,000 and then you kept it, you were there with it for, you know, another 10 years. And when you pass away, it's valued at $100,000 and you gift that in your will, for instance, to your kids. And if your kids turn around and sell it that same day, they inherited it for $100,000, they're not going to pay any capital gains tax on that property. So essentially your basis is stepped up from that 50000 to the value of your death at 100,000. And that's probably, you know, a very basic way of explaining it, but that's a, a big benefit in our tax law. And, you know, a lot of, you know, the new administration that came in, they were talking about, you know, putting that on the chopping block, removing, you know, that stepped up in basis, step up in basis, I should say. Sure, sure. So, how many beneficiaries or heirs, right, or people that go through the probate process when they inherit real estate or investments or whatever, how many of them think they owe a bunch of taxes on all that stuff? <laughs> I will say this. Uh, a majority of my clients are concerned about whether or not they have to pay taxes on, you know, assets that they receive or whether they sell it. And one thing that I can say, you know, at the federal level, at, Florida, at the Florida level, we don't have an inheritance tax, right? So just by the act of, you know, receiving property that you've inherited, you're not going to be charged a tax for that. It might be different in other states, but at least that's my experience here. Sure, sure. I think one of the biggest assets that may or include taxation, and I'll let you speak to this, is um, what if somebody inherits an IRA from somebody, right? Are there rules around if I get, if my parents had a 401k and it later maybe became an IRA and then they pass away and I ultimately inherit that, what are the tax ramifications? What can I do with it? What are my planning opportunities? Well, there are opportunities. Um, I understand that you can roll over some of the, the IRA amount, but if you were to cash it out, of course, you know, you're going to be, you know, taxed on that, you know, on that money. But do they have to cash it out? So no, they, they don't have to cash it out. They can roll it over and, and take it over themselves as long as they're a qualified person to do so. So it, it's just another means of, you know, receiving future wealth and being able to use that and move it forward. 
Sure. Makes a lot of sense. I get it. So, well, well, interesting. So we've, we've talked a little bit about, so, okay. So we've talked about Medicaid planning. We've talked a little bit about some of the planning for the high net worth. So let's give a strategy. Let's give an idea. We talked about some, a personal service contract and income producing real estate on the Medicaid side. Let's talk about name off a planning strategy or two that somebody on the higher end with an estate tax issue might want to consider. What would be a couple of the tools that they would look at? Well, some tools that they could look at if they're looking to minimize their estate tax liability would um, definitely be uh, finding ways to to spend down their money in ways that they're not going to be taxed on, right? So um, we do have a gift tax as well as an estate tax. So some things are exempt from that, right? So if you're paying for, you know, someone's tuition, whether it could be, you know, at the grade school level, but, you know, thinking about college tuition that could eat it down some and that's exempt from gift taxes um, paying someone's medical bills things like that that could be done as well and certain types of irrevocable trusts would accomplish the goal of minimizing the estate tax liabilities but it just all goes into you know which one fits right for your situation even if you have a philanthropic client, you know, you could get some tax benefits from some uh, charitable donations and things like that. So it's all it's all going to come down to, you know, what the client needs and, you know, what their ultimate goals are, because um, I think we can craft a plan around those that's going to accomplish the ultimate goal of minimizing tax. OK, understood. Makes sense. Makes sense. So let's talk about in your practice, right? A little bit. We all have fun stories or interesting stories, right? So I remember back in the day I had an estate planning case where mom went into a nursing home and there was a son and a daughter and the son literally went and stole mom out of the nursing home and moved her and put her in a back bedroom in his house. And he believed that if he physically possessed mom, that he would be able to have access more of her stuff if and when mom passed away, right? Believe if he physically had control of mom. Now, you know that is crazy. (laughs) And by the way, mom died in his back bedroom because she wasn't getting the level of care ultimately that she needed for being there, right? But that you could see how that type of a story would drive a wedge between, you know, a son and a daughter, right? When one of them treats mom like that. So do you have any interesting stories? Maybe that's kind of a bad story, but a little bit funny, you know, in a way, but maybe on the other side of the ledger, maybe you have like an enlightening story where you help somebody put together and put, put some plans in place. So any stories to share? Nothing too in particular, maybe, maybe more so, you know, a a highlight of how, you know, sour things like probate can get, right? So I was once handling a probate where, you know, I represented the oldest son, mom had passed away, oldest of seven, and mom actually had a will that said, I want all my children to receive my home. You know, I worked hard for my home, nothing strange there. We get to probate and we get in front of the judge. And it was the first time I've had a judge deny the request of the decedent. And the judge said, I don't like the idea of seven people owning a piece of property together. They're not going to agree on what to do with it. So luckily enough, we ended up um, handling things amongst the siblings and, and everything was, was worked out. 
But it's just, it's something that I think of whenever a client asks me, should I do a trust or a will? Because if it was a trust, there wouldn't be anyone stopping them. <laughs> the judge wouldn't have a say. There would be no discretion on the part of the court. So it's just uh, more of a highlight of, you know, why it's important to pick and choose the right plan. Well, if you don't pick your plan, he picks one for you, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and when was the last time we ever liked somebody else picking something for us, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Understood. Well, hey, you know, you talked a little bit about at the beginning when we first uh, started that you do some teaching and as a little bit of an adjunct professor type thing. So I don't want to just assume that you talk about estate planning. Like, you know, who do you teach and what do you teach them? You know, and what got you? Why? How did you? Where did you start moonlighting as a teacher? Where did that come from? Yeah. So yeah, you know, I, I kind of fell into it. It was you know right time in right place. I primarily am teaching business law right now, but, you know, even with business law, it does, you know, have implications of estate planning, right? How do you get your business to the next generation? Um, how do you make sure your business operations aren't interrupted during the time of the transition of you know, power, I should say. So it's, it's just, I like to highlight these things and, and really just lay the foundation for the students as they move forward and get into their careers. Yeah, good stuff. I mean, look, it helps knowing, what do they say? Always start with the end in mind, right? And the end in mind could be some estate planning. And I guess from a business perspective, estate planning is succession and key man, right? You know, what happens if we wake up, dress up and show up every day, our business will probably be fine. If, but if death, disability, divorce or sickness or something like that happens, then, Hey, you throw this big monkey wrench in the plan. You know, who last thing I want to do is be in business with your wife. You know, I probably Mm -hmm. didn't like you as much as a business partner as you thought I did. And I certainly don't want to be in a business with your spouse. (laughs) That's right. There you go. Exactly. So you know, all these things you got, you got to think about them. And it's, it's interesting to see, you know, just how far state planning and that realm, that area of law just reaches into other aspects of life like that. Yeah, understood. Well, Jamie, this has been fun time. I appreciate everything you're sharing. What didn't I ask today that I should have asked that we should be sharing with the listeners? Uh, no, I think we, we covered some, some great points. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Good stuff. Absolutely appreciate you being here. So, well, everyone, thanks again. This was another episode of the Tax Alpha podcast today. Um, We had a state and business attorney, uh, Jamie Burrow on. He is from Port St. Lucie, Florida. And and I think you said born and raised in that area. Didn't you tell me that? Uh, Yeah, that's my hometown. (laughs) Floridian through and through, right? Yes, yes. You know what? I'm from Florida myself. I'm, I'm as many generations as you can go back kind of central Floridian. And for the longest time, I think people used to think I was a dumb Southerner. Now it just turns out I was early. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants to be here now. We we had it figured out way ahead of the game, didn't we? <laughs> right. Exactly. Now we're the hotspot. <laughs> now we're the hotspot. Now we're the hotspot. Very good. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. Once again, everybody, today was Jamie Burrow, state planning attorney. All of his contact information will be listed at the bottom of the podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned something today. Matt Chancy with the Tax Alpha Solutions. Have a great day. 
thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 